We've got six men, three decades, and they all intertwine. Frank W. Butterfield is here today to explain how he does that. Welcome to Gay Mystery Authors with Brad Shreve, featuring interviews with some of the most renowned authors and up-and-coming talent in LGBTQ mysteries, suspense, and thrillers. Plus, Justine Adamek is here with her weekly recommendation. We were so loose and easy. Okay, now we're still loose and easy. Start talking. All right, we're still loose and easy. And here we are recording for what, the, the third time, Brad? Uh, this is the third and going to be the last time. This time we've got it down pat. All right, it's our charm. Third time is a charm. So what'd you do this weekend? Well, what I did this weekend was I had a great interview with the guys over at Rote Podcast, uh, Vance and Baz over there. They interviewed me both about my book, A Body in a Bathhouse. And then they, we also talked about this show and uh, the excitement of getting it started and, and talking about crime fiction. Yeah. So a uh, big shout out to them, Vance and Baz over at Rote Podcast. It's, it stands for Writers on the Edge. I highly recommend the show. And I got to say, I, I can't wait for, uh, to hear it so that you can be the interviewee. Did they do one of those spinning wheel hard questions? No, they, they don't do a spinning wheel hard question. They ask questions about personal care. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to it. Thursday, if you're listening to us on the day that we release, this is Thursday. The show is on Fridays. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Excellent. If you're listening release day, the show is on tomorrow. Listen in. You'll get to hear my fabulous voice once again. Sounds great. I, I got to tell you about a problem I'm having. It's, it's a problem that Maurice and I are having in bed. Oh, my gosh. We're just going right there. And yes, it drives him crazy. All night long, I kick off the sheets and the bedspread, and then I put it back on when I'm cold. Hot again, I kick it off. Cold, I pull it back up. And you were telling me that you have a solution. Well, the first solution is you need to have separate comforters. <laughs> I mean, my husband and I, we each have twin comforters so that, uh, you know, we can, we can just do our own thing. And I got a new comforter this week. So Buffy... We've got a link on our website to Buffy, then they make comforters. So I was looking at this thinking, well, do I really want to do this? They're made from eucalyptus and recycled materials, and it had a seven-day free trial. So I said, well, well, and it's interesting because you, you can return it for 30 days, but if you get it for seven days, they, they don't charge your card for the first seven days. So I thought that was kind of nice. I didn't have to wait around for a refund if I wanted to return it. Yeah, what do you have to lose? Exactly. So I tried it, and I absolutely love it. I have the cloud, which really is supposed to float on you, and it really floats on you. I get under it, and I can hardly feel that there's a comforter on top of me. Yet it keeps me warm, and I haven't been waking up with the night sweats of being too warm. So I love it. My daughter also climbed under it and said she felt like it was floating. So I, th I think it's a great deal. I think everybody should try it. At least for those seven days, and if you like it, which I expect you will, keep it. Well, I'm glad you tried it out. Now I can get my own. Yeah. 
anybody that wants the Buffy, we do have links on the show notes for this show or any of the shows and also at the bottom of the, the main webpage. So just go to www.gaymysteryauthors.com and you'll find the links on the show notes. Thank you for trying it out. I did. And it was great. So uh, who are we talking about today? What book? I am talking about Broken Woman, a Jinx Balloon Mystery by Dharma Kelleher. Dharma is a, a trans writer, and her protagonist, Jinx Baloo, is a trans woman. I read recently on Twitter, she wrote this because she was tired of trans women always being the victims or the sex workers. She wanted a trans woman that kicked ass. And let me just tell you, Jinx kicks ass. She's a bounty hunter, and in this one, she gets dragged into being a private investigator. The woman that she's doing a that she's got a bounty on is also transgender, and she's being protected by a all women biker gang. So when they go to try to retrieve the the bounty, the biker gang makes a deal and says, "We'll turn her over to you." only if you can find the real killer. And after humming and hawing and trying to get out of it, there really wasn't any choice. So Jinx took out her old private investigator license and investigated a murder. Let me just say, her body count rivals any James Bond movie. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you another thing about this book. Um, you know, you, you, we often wonder whether uh, books in a series are standalones. The book works very well as a standalone. The characters are introduced. You know who they all are. The problem that I have is that there are spoilers for the previous books. So when she describes her previous cases, you find out who got hurt, who didn't, who lives, who dies, and a little bit of the solution. So if you're not into spoilers and you actually want to start at the beginning, I would start at the beginning of the Jinx Baloo series, which is two books. And then I'd also do the Shay Sullivan series, who Shay shows up in these books. And there are two books in those series. On the other hand, if you want to just dive in, uh, you know, people dive in in the middle of TV shows and, and don't go back and binge watch from the beginning. If you're one of those kind of people, this is really a great place to start. Yeah, I'm one of those. I don't mind diving in the middle. I mean, it's, it tends to be more fun to start at the beginning. But there have been times where a, one in the middle just really jumps at me and says, read me. And I I have no problem with it. I really like this one. Uh, and I, I did not regret doing it. And I would still go back and read the earlier ones, even though I know who lives, who dies, who gets hurt, who doesn't. How are you rating that this week? This one is a thrilling recommendation, Brad. Thrilling? We haven't yeah. had a thrilling before. Nope, it's fast-paced, and as I say, a high body count. Well, I'll do one thing, one thing about Dharma Kelleher, and that is that she has started her own podcast as well. Uh, we're going to talk about it a little more last next week. But I did want to let everybody know to check the Gritty Gritty podcast, which Dharma has started about a month ago or so. We'll talk more about it next week. But the Gritty Gritty Podcast, if you'd like to check it out. Do you have any news from uh, Requeer Tales this week? Buried on Sunday, which is the second book in the Jeffrey Chadwick series, is coming out on Wednesday. 
and Jeffrey is uh, off at one of those country estates, this one outside Montreal, Canada, and he and the hosts, as well as the other guests, were all held hostage by escaped bank robbers. So if that's the news from uh, Record Tales, and other than that, we will see you next week. See you then, Brad. We're sponsored by Requeered Tales, preserving our LGBTQ literary heritage, one book at a time. Check them out at requeeredtales.com. Frank W. Butterfield, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome. Hi, Brad. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. This is really exciting what you're up to here. Well, I'm glad you think so. It seems like a lot of other people do. It's uh, it's about time for something like this uh, show. I, I'm hoping that it expands across the nation. A lot of people learn about the genre that we're involved in. Uh, according to Frank, he worships San Francisco, uh, but he lives at the beach on another coast. He was born on a windy day in November of 1966, which I've heard before. I don't know how Frank knows that, but maybe his parents told him. <laughs> How was that? How did you- I, I, I was born in Lubbock, Texas. It was windy. <laughs> it's always windy. It's okay. never not windy there. Well, there you go. So that was an easy guess. Yeah. Uh, now, Frank was elected president of his high school Spanish club in the spring of 1983. And then after moving across these United States like a rapid fire pinball, he now makes his home in a hurricane proof motel built in 1947 with superior water pressure. And while Frank hasn't met any dolphins personally, that invitation is always open. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about you uh, later, but first I want to talk about your series that you have. You have three uh, book series that you're running. One is kind of in a state of flux, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, your first series is the Nick Williams series, and right. you, have, you have written an amazing 32 books in the Nick Williams series. And as I understand, Nick is the world's richest gay man, and his husband, Carter Jones, is a muscled firefighter, not too shabby. And that series runs from 1953 to 1968. Is that correct? 67. 67. Okay. And as I said, that you're ending, and they're going to carry on in another form. But uh, what I want you to do is just tell us more about Nick and Carter and their story. Well, uh, Nick and Carter met across a crowded room in 1947. They were at a, a bar that did actually exist in San Francisco in North Beach called La Vie Parisienne, not La Vie Parisienne, uh, which is one of my favorite little side stories. Uh, they literally, it was love at first sight, insta-love, the whole thing. And uh, Nick spent the first year pretending like he was broke because he really didn't know how to tell Carter that he was wealthy. His money came from his great uncle, Paul, who had left it to him and didn't leave any of his money to any of the other family that happened during uh, world war two. And when the other family got wind of it, they sued him. And that was when Nick and Carter meet that lawsuit is still going on. And that's part of the reason why Nick doesn't want to talk about it. Um, but when they first meet, Carter's a fireman, and Nick is working as an orderly at General Hospital, which is now called Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, I think. Um, but 
they meet, they get together, and then a few years pass. And in 1953, after Nick has admitted that he's wealthy and they're living together in a house that they buy and they're kind of, you know, have kind of worked into living together. And Nick has become a private detective in the meantime, just mostly like tracking down husbands that are cheating on their wives and that sort of thing, nothing big. Um, Nick's friend comes to him and says, hey, there's this uh, movie star who for some reason was not arrested when this club was raided. And so Nick starts following that. And at the same time, his sister dies in a really strange car accident. And he has to figure that out, what happened, who was involved. And that's where the first book starts. That's the unexpected heiress. So the the result of that is that through a series of kind of interesting little twists and turns that Nick and Carter uh, with a couple of friends of theirs end up having dinner at the top of the Mark at the top of the Mark Hopkins, um, which is a beautiful place. that's open still. You can't, I don't think you can have dinner there, but they do have a bar with an incredible view. And Nick, takes it upon himself to walk over to George Hurst, uh, the son of William Randolph Hearst, who is more or less running the one of the big papers in the city called The Examiner, and tells him off about this, that, or the other, and basically ends up outing himself right in front of all these people there at the top of the mark. Um, the main way that happens is that Carter's so proud of Nick for doing what he did that he basically takes him in his arms and kisses him right there on the dance floor in 1953. Well, that's pretty dramatic for 1953. It is. So that's where the fantastical elements of this story begin, because there's two things that are happening. One is that Nick is very wealthy, so he can kind of like deal with whatever slings and arrows may come to him. And the second is that predates anyone coming out on a national level or on a global level by about 30, um, about 25 years, because the first person who really in real life did that um, was Harvey Milk. So he comes out, and there are lots of people who were sort of out in that intervening time, but nobody was out like, like what I'm portraying Nick to be. And that, so there's a fantastical element of that, which turns a few people off, but a lot of people just enjoy the ride because that allows them to kind of move around in that time period and in brushing up against actual historical figures. And you get to see how that works itself out. I was going to mention, you mentioned William Randolph Hearst and, and other celebrities. That tends to be a common theme in, in your novels, correct? Right. Except that everybody's dead. There's three exceptions to that of the, what I've written about in the Nick Williams mysteries. I wrote about, Lance Brisson, who is Rosalind Russell's son, he's still alive. Um, I did write this really fun interaction that happens with Haley Mills and Mm -hmm. uh, Joanna Barnes. Joanna Barnes is the woman who steps on the ping pong ball in in the movie Auntie Mame. Mm -hmm. Um, And and also played the the woman that Brian Keith is going to marry in The Parent Trap. So Joanna Barnes and Haley Mills were friends from having acted together in that movie and they are Nick and Carter happen to be kind of around the corner from where there's a, 
a TV show that they're going to be on and they run into the two of them. And I, I, I hopefully he, they, if they ever read this book, cause they're both still alive, that they would be pleased with what I said. But for the most part, the people that I write about are dead. So um, I'm, pre- I'm presuming that the ones that are alive, you portray in a, in a positive light. Well, Lance is always off at camp. So he never show, he's never shown up in the, any story because he, He's always off at school or at camp, and Roz is always just like, oh, he's doing great, and then they move on to something else. Um, with Haley and Joanna Barnes, that was like, okay, I'm just assuming this will be okay because they're public personas. Um, but, however, as time moves on, more and more people are still alive. One of the persons that um, I was, I really wanted to write a lot about was um, – the guy who played Perry Mason, whose name is going to come to me in just a moment. Um, Raymond Burr. Thank you. Raymond Burr, who was gay and sort of more or less open, but not publicly, but among people who knew him, but his partner is still alive. So I've kind of kept that at a distance. There's a case where Raymond Burr is involved in a mystery where they go down to LA and help him like help figure it out. But, Everybody else, yeah, I try to put as many historical figures in the books as possible and have real historical events referred to. Well, now, the second book in the second series that you have is the Daytona Beach series, Uh, and this is what I'm most familiar with, personally. You have four books in the series, features attorney Tom Jarrell and P.I. Ronnie Grissom, and that right. one starts in 1947, as I believe it still is in 1947, correct? Right. The first uh, the first four books, they go through New Year's or Christmas of 47 into New Year's of 48. The fifth book, which will probably be the next book that I write, takes place during Bike Week of 1948, which would be in March. Um, so those books are like, I like to call them Perry Mason at the beach with a gay twist because Tom is an attorney who kind of gets thrust into becoming criminal defense attorney without much experience. Mm -hmm. And he, so in order to educate himself, he has it like a mentor, but he also reads a lot of Perry Mason books in order to like figure out how to do things. It's a lot of fun because I like the legal legal procedural part of the stories. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy the fact also that those books are written in a slightly different way. The Nick Cart the Nick Williams mysteries are all written with the first person narrator, which is Nick. But in the Daytona Beach books, I have five characters who give their POVs, um, not from the I am perspective, but from the third person. So we get to hear from Ronnie and Tom, as well as Marvine, who is Tom's secretary, and then uh, Howie, who works for, who's going to end up working for Ronnie as a PI as well. And then Alice, who is, who cleans house for Tom and Ronnie and cooks for them because she's black and she was a teacher at the local black high school here in Daytona Beach, but she got fired after they figured out that she was a lesbian. So, uh, and she's also kind of like working on her own thing that Tom is helping her do and all that. Uh, So it's interesting to be able to see the same story through the different eyes of the different characters. It's fun to write. It's a lot harder to write than having a single eye narrator, first person. I was going to ask you about that. 
yeah, you're getting into the heads of different people. But the more I do it, the more accustomed I'm getting to being in their heads. And they, it's also kind of fun because they can go off and do things and we can find out about it. We don't have to wait for them to come back and tell the narrator, which is what happens with the Nick stories. Um, now, they're on a different social level than um, right. the other Nick Williams. So I, right. do you have any interaction with famous people with, with this story? The only really, there's not any, but they don't go anywhere. They're not like Nick and Carter where they fly all over the world. They're like very Daytona centered. And like the furthest they ever go is like to Key West or up to um, Georgia. However, having said that, they're, they will be brushing up against President Batista of Cuba because Batista lived here when he was in exile from Cuba in the late forties and early fifties, before he went back to Cuba to be president for the last time, because he was president in the forties and then he was like overthrown in a coup and he lived here and they've already kind of brushed up against him a little bit, but they'll probably end up meeting him at some point. Uh, but that would be probably it. Uh, there might be others, although they did go see Doris Dacing um, down at a hotel in Miami beach well, of course. Three, yeah, which <laughs> was a fabulous thing to write about, by the way. So you couldn't resist putting some historical figures in there. Well, there are, you know, and there's definitely, there are actual historical figures in this, like in book four. That, well, actually the judge who uh, Tom is always uh, at trial in front of was a real person. And I've met people who knew him and gave me a lot of insight into his personality. Uh, he was something else um he was a florida judge i mean florida in the 40s is this very different place than what it is now so uh there was a lot of corruption and a lot of like double dealing and backroom stuff and all sorts of really interesting fun things that make for great stories the third series that you've started your newest series i believe uh you have three books and that's the romantical adventures of wit and eddie uh, I understand this is more on the romance side with a with a touch of mystery. Is that correct? Yeah. So okay. these are they really are adventures. There's a little bit of mystery, although we haven't had a mystery yet. But they're just it's a, and it's contemporary romance. So that's the book I'm working on right now. That book goes through the last two weeks of August and goes up against uh, Hurricane Dorian as it was coming here. Well, normally we don't talk about romances on this show, but we have to with this one because somehow you have these three different stories that take place in different time periods intertwined. Right. So we can't leave it out. So before we get to that, what can you tell us about Witt and Eddie uh, more about their stories and how they're different from the others? Um, well, besides being contemporary, um, Witt is a retired football player, an NFL player who worked, who played at the end for an expansion, a fake expansion team that I came up with that's in San Antonio called the Matadors, having previously played for the Vikings and for the Raiders. He grew up in East Texas and was the son of a, basically a mega, a mega church pastor who's, who's at the level of like. Benny Hinn or Jerry Falwell and has, you know, had political connections and all that sort of thing who dies in the first book and wit comes out. Wit is basically a cross between for those who play football or no football. He's a cross between Gronk 
Rob Gronkowski for the who plays for the Patriots or did, who retired at the same time that Witt did, uh, and Tim Tebow. So he is practicing faithful abstinence and is very much in the closet until he meets Eddie. Actually, it's really until he begins to play for the Matadors. Because the Matadors, and here's where the intertwining starts, the Matadors are owned by Bob Jenkins and Mario Osler, who inherited Nick and Carter's big empire when they died. So um, that was something that Nick and Carter set up, and like because they didn't have any family to leave anything to, not really. And so they wanted to find another couple like them that they could hand everything over to. So Mario ends up buying into the NFL as part of the expansion and they hire Wit, and then after they get to know Wit, they realize he's probably gay and he needs someone to help him come out. And that's how Eddie and Wit meet. Eddie is essentially me. Almost all of his life story is autobiographically parallel to mine. Um, there are some exceptions. There's some things I take out like he's not an author, but there, almost everything else is my backstory. Oh, I've got to jump into that one then. Oh, please. <laughs> Definitely. Now, so um, how do Tom and Ronnie from the Daytona series play into the the Whit and Eddie stories? In book two of the Whit and Eddie stories, they discover that Eddie, that, um, sorry, that Ronnie Grisham, who was the PI back in the 40s here in Daytona, is still alive. Not only is he still alive, but he has, Tom has passed away, but he's got a new husband named Howard. And they have moved back to Daytona Beach and uh, from Fort Lauderdale, which is where Ronnie reaches out to Mario when he begins to see all the, the stuff that w goes viral about Wit and Eddie. Because, you know, of course, that it becomes this insane story. And then he kind of, <laughs> in a way that only Ronnie could do, he basically invades Wit and Eddie's life and starts kind of bossing him around and telling him what to do. And he's 102, but really kind of, viral and not at all about to croak. So that's, that's where they, but in the meantime, but in the, uh, let me try that again. In the interim, Tom and Ronnie ended up working for Nick and Carter starting in the late fifties. And they've actually been in some of the Nick Williams mysteries. They showed up in a, a couple of them, including the last one. So they're intertwined like that. And then there's some sort of mysterious, nobody knows really how it happened or what happened, fallout between Ronnie and Nick at some point in like the 80s or 90s. And no one's really sure how it happened, but that'll, that's yet to be discovered. I don't know how it happened. So I'll find out what everybody else does. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm intrigued because what point of view is the, are the Wit and Eddie stories? It's Eddie as first person narrator. And okay. it's. And it's me and the way I think and the way I talk, pretty much. So this is interesting because you have kind of different point of views with the Nick and William, Nick Williams mysteries, the Daytona Beach series, and the Wit and Eddie stories. How much of a challenge is that to change that between the different storylines as well as the differences between the books? Well, it's actually pretty easy because at least for me anyway, because of the way I write, which is I just basically sit down at the keyboard and let them tell me the stories. That's actually how it happens. I don't plot. I don't plan. I don't have any sort of idea at all what's going to happen. With uh, the book I'm writing right now, again, which is not in the mystery section, but it's, it's the same way I've written all the books. 
I'm actually almost at the end of this Wit Netty book, and I'm just now discovering what has been going on all along. That I knew there was something happening, but I didn't know this was what it was. And it's kind of surprising, actually, even for me. Um, but that's essentially what has happened with every single book I've written. I just, the characters just show up and they start talking and I write down the descriptions of the things that I see in my head and that's how it all comes together. I don't, I'm really not a big fan of like plotter versus pantser. I don't, if anybody's heard that term, the difference between someone who sits and plots and then people go by the seat of their pants. I don't feel like I'm really doing either one of them. I'm just literally hearing the story and then writing it down as, as a person that maps out the, the entire story. I'm really fascinated by that. And anybody that can do that is, uh, is quite impressive to me. Well, it, it, if I was to map out the story, I would never write a book. That's just, it would take away the pleasure from you. Well, it would take away the pleasure, but also I just would never finish mapping it out. That's something <laughs> That's something I discovered a long time ago, back in my previous life when I was a project manager. When I started doing the things that project management training was telling me to do, everything that I was doing grinded to a halt. Because I would get all, and, and they talk about this, like you get into the project and the project management instead of actually doing the work or getting other people to do the work. For me, it's like, no, I just need to be at the keyboard. And when I'm ready, put my fingers on the on the keys and then find out what's going to happen next. Well, it sounds fun. And and like I said, I'm impressed. Uh, now, going back to the Nick Williams mysteries, book number 32, and I, I apologize, I don't remember the name of it. The Loveless Lawyer. Oh, I would have been, I think it would have been right if I guessed. That is the close of the Nick Williams mysteries. Right. Yet we are not seeing the end of Nick and Carter. No. It's going to be the adventures of Nick and Carter. Is that correct? Right. Because what I wanted was a little bit more, and I almost did this. It's funny. I almost did this back at book 20, but it didn't feel right. I want a little bit more room to write more about what happens with them and not have to have every book actually have a whodunit in it. There's still going to be mysteries, but I also want to be able to write like pure romance. I also want to be able to write adventures and maybe more like things like espionage and suspense and not always have to have a what happened and who did it and here's the summary of how things happened and that sort of thing i just want the books to be a little bit more free form and it kind of sort of makes sense like the last book is 1967 mm-hmm. then the first book of the adventure series is going to be january of 1970 new year's day And in typical Nick fashion, we're skipping all the things that everybody thinks we should do. Like, there should be a whole thing about the Summer of Love in 67, and then, like, the Democratic National Convention in 68, and the election of Nixon. There was no book that happened around the Kennedy assassination. And one of my readers came back to me and was like, I was really hoping to see that. And I was like, well, you know, we know all about those things. Mm -hmm. What I'm much more interested in is, like, the Tay Bush raid, which was kind of the last really big police raid of a bar in San Francisco. And it was in 1960. I'm going to get the date wrong. Either 61 or 62. And that's kind of, it's not the center of one of the stories, but it very much happens in it. And that, that raid actually kind of changed. It was the, the predecessor of kind of the Stonewall era for San Francisco. But the real Stonewall in San Francisco happened, and this is in the after, 
this is referred to a lot in this last book, The Loveless Lawyer, was at the Compton Cafeteria Riot, which took place sometime in August of 66. Nobody knows for sure because there are no records. Hmm. Um, they're the people who were there and who went through it, but nobody really knows what the date was. But that, for people in San Francisco, that was kind of like the Stonewall. And so I always like to joke that when Stonewall happens, which also we're going to skip because the first story is in January of 70 for the next series. Mm-hmm. When Stonewall happened, what people in San Francisco got was the Gay Freedom Day Parade in the summer of 1970. That's what really happened. And because Stonewall, the idea of Stonewall had happened there much earlier than it did in New York. But of course, the reverberation of Stonewall throughout the whole country is a benefit to everyone, including people in San Francisco. Right. There, there have been many protests before. We have on record there have been protests before, but right. Stonewall was the catalyst to the to the, right. to the gay rights movement. Yeah, well, on the national level. But in San Francisco, it, had already, it was already in full bloom by the time Stonewall happened. So that's, that's the kind of thing that I do want to write about, the things that are kind of like over in the – from a historical perspective, the things that are over on the side – I've got a question I have to ask you. You write three series at once. I follow you on Facebook, and you're regularly at the beach. We see you travel around Florida. I know you put a lot of research into your book. Have you seen a TV or a movie in the last three years? I mean, how the hell do you do it? No, I don't go to the movies. Uh, well, okay, that's not true. I would to go see, I've seen, I'm probably going to go see Downton Abbey because I really do need to see that in a movie theater. Um, I saw one movie last year, which is the first one I've seen since the summer of 16, which was, don't tell anybody, Mamma Mia 2, because I had to see <laughs> Cher on the screen. That was fun. And I was like, it was like, I was secretly shamed about it, but I love that movie. I love the story and it's very silly and it's a lot of fun. Anyway. And you have ABBA music, so you really right, can't go exactly. wrong. That, that was it was Cher and Abba, and it was fabulous. I do watch like my background noise is either Turner Classic Movies, whatever's on, or I've got the entire Perry Mason series on DVD, so I just pop in a DVD. And but yeah, I don't, I don't really participate in popular culture hardly at all, and which I'm totally happy with because I spend a lot of time exploring the things that I want to know more about that happened back when. Now, do you think writing the uh, Wit and Eddie series since it's a contemporary series, are you going to have to start looking more into the pop series, pop culture, or do you don't think that's a concern? Well, what's really funny is, so when Wit and Eddie get together, Wit is very like, he's 35 and he's a football player. And so he's very like bro. Like he's like, hey dude, and all that. But after they kind of get to know each other a little bit and he gets more comfortable with Eddie, all of a sudden they begin to realize they have all these same things in common. Eddie loves, like me, old movies and old music because to me and for him, it's like it's a gay thing. That's Mm -hmm. Wit likes all that stuff because when he was growing up, that's all he was allowed to watch or listen to. Because his parents didn't want him exposed to, because Wit was born in 84, didn't want him exposed to rap or this or that or the, you know, like they wanted him to like, just have like a, a very wholesome 
upbringing. So he actually knows more about old movies than Eddie does. Which, and Eddie keeps saying, like, are you really sure you're a football player? Like, what football players, like, know the lines from Casablanca? I've, this is, <laughs> I've never heard of this. So that's kind of a fun thing. And, yeah, popular culture does pop in, but it's just from things that I see, like, that pop, give their attention, like, that jump out of the screen at me, just from, like, looking at other stuff. And every now and then, if I need some sort of reference, I'll, like, text my sister, who's the same age as Wit. And then I can run with that. So there you have a resource. Exactly. Yeah, just just like the people who helped me with the football team, because I know nothing about football. Mm. But fortunately, my brother knows pretty much everything, and he helped me figure out how to do it. And then also a couple of other readers have been really helpful with that. Yeah, the only thing I know about football is they get into a circle, they run for about 10 seconds, and then they get into a circle again. <laughs> I don't see this action that people are always talking about. Uh, so I have, I know nothing about football either. So as far as your characters go, I believe Nick Williams has known you the longest. What would Nick tell me about you? Um, he would say that uh, he'd say he's a good kid. Good kid. Yeah, that's his, that's a very Nick thing to say. Well, to, to push a little further here then, one day a few years back, I guess three years ago, you devoted your life to writing, and you've written almost 50 books. What was your life be like before you went insane? <laughs> well, um, I have another business that I do uh, that sits over on the side that's kind of like coaching. And so that's what I was mostly doing. I, what I was doing in particular was from about 2011 until 2015 is I was driving all around the country going anywhere I wanted to go that caught my fancy. And I did lots of cross country trips. I did a whole circle of the U S twice. I did lots of trips from like Jacksonville to Santa Monica on, you know, going the whole length of I-10. Um, I did the same thing on 80, I think. And I tried to drive US 2 all the way along the Canadian border. And then I tried to drive US 84 from Georgia all the way up to California, to Colorado and discovered like, this is why people love interstate freeways is because you don't go 40, 35, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 all the time. Prior to that, I had a real job where I was a project manager for a uh, contractor. And when I finally decided to leave Austin and just go on the road, uh, it was just because I'd always wanted to do that. And so I did it until I was ready to stop. And then I ended up here in Daytona Beach, which, which is its own very long story, but discovered you can drive on the beach here. And then I was like, I'm not leaving. <laughs> because I get to be in a car and on the beach at the same time. This makes me very happy. There's like two of my favorite things in the world combined together. So I've been here and you said like I go in around Florida. I don't, I go to and from Orlando. I've gone to Savannah twice since I've lived here. I've gone to Fort Lauderdale twice since I've lived here. And that is like too far. I don't really actually want to go. I have this mm -hmm. whole thing about wanting to live here and not wanting to go anywhere which anyone who knows me is constantly shocked and like, what you, know, where is the real Frank and what did you do with him? Because that's not the way I used to be. I wanted to always be on the run. So another way would be to say, 
I was insane until I discovered writing. And now I'm kind of like more like a normal person, sort of, but I'll never be normal. So, and that's a good thing. Well, well what is your writing journey? What, how, how did that all begin? Um, what's your earliest recollection of wanting to be a writer? Well, I, I've, I've always wanted to write. When I was nine years old, I was at my grandmother's house and tried to write a short story and couldn't quite figure out how to do it. But so I just, for whatever reason, decided, well, I don't know how to write. Uh, and this, <laughs> I was always an A student, um, but I would always kind of argue with my English teachers about the formulaic writing that we were being taught. And I was just like, this doesn't really make any sense. I don't understand why we're doing this. What is this for? And if, nope. they were like, don't bother me, kid. Like, you know, just like, just go do your work. When I was about 30, I suddenly had an idea for a mystery, a gay mystery novel that kind of sort of was inspired by Mark Zubro and mm -hmm. his, the series that he wrote about the baseball player. In fact, his, that whole thing of like the baseball player and the teacher, they were a couple and have kind of inspired a lot of the things that I've done that the way he captured that and the dichotomy between the two men having different kinds of perspectives and jobs that they're doing has always been in the background of everything I write. But I tried to write this short story or this novel and I got two or three chapters in. What's funny is I had a, a coworker who was a fan of Jane Austen. And for some reason I thought I'd show it to her to see what she thought. And she didn't like it and was very <laughs> clear about it. But what I did discover after in the third chapter, there was an encounter between the main character and a waitress. Like the waitress kind of came into the story and took off. And now I recognize what was happening, that the way that I write now was actually happening in that chapter, where I just let the characters tell me what they're doing instead of trying to figure out what they were doing and then put it down on paper. But again, I, but I didn't really understand it. And so it wasn't until 2016 when I was writing fanfics, kind of slash fic stuff that will never see the light of day. And I wrote about 300,000 words. And I kind of got into a habit of like writing in the afternoon. I would try and write three to 5,000 words a day. And after I realized there was, I was never going to be able to sell that, I finally just sat down one day and said, okay, fine. I just want to write a story that I can sell. And that's when I met Nick. What a great story. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot easier. There's still challenges because there's sometimes that I get, get emotionally involved in what's going on and I don't like where I see things going. And so I'll kind of like slow down. And I've, I've done that probably in the last two books more than I've ever done because the last two books have been very momentous. So if our, reader, or our readers, our listeners want to follow you or, or find your book, what are the best ways for them to do so? Um, so my name is Frank W. Butterfield, and I have a website that is website that is frankwbutterfield.com. You can find me on Facebook by searching that name as well. Those are the two best, best ways to get in touch with me. On my website, I have every book listed uh, that's available. Uh, you can find me on Amazon because that's my only uh, place where I sell. Yeah, that's Facebook is a really great place to connect with me as well. And I, I try to reply to every email I get 
every message I get because I always appreciate hearing from people and what they think about the books and how much they're enjoying them. And I get lots of really, really sweet notes from people. Before I let you go, I ask every author on the show a question that authors hate. (laughs) So let me spin the wheel here. Have you considered getting a real job? No, and I'm really glad to to announce that I got sort of semi-fired from my last job and was told that under no uncertain terms would there ever be any references. And the bridge got burned. And I could get a job at Starbucks or whatever, but there's I would never make – I mean, that would be a waste of my time in terms of – And you have plenty of I make of plenty of money, so I don't really need another job. Well, I do. Yes, that's, that's why that's I make deal. money. So, yeah, that works out really well. Well, Frank, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been great speaking with you, Brad. Congratulations. This is really great. If you have an idea to help improve the show or would just like to make a comment, go to our website, GayMysteryAuthors.com. Click the link for contact. You'll find a number that you can call and leave a message, or you can just fill out the contact form. We look forward to hearing from you. Go to our website, GayMysteryAuthors.com, for links to subscribe on your favorite podcast applications so you don't miss a single episode. You'll also find transcripts of this and other shows. We're here every week. Thank you for listening.